Welcome back to Talking Movies with Ty and Teresa. I'm Teresa. I'm Ty. And this is our final in our Coen Brothers series. Which, I'm not sure if we could say we saved the best for last, but this is definitely, I think, the one that put them on the map. Uh, yeah, I would kind of agree with that. I think they were already kind of a big deal among, um, like, cinephiles and critics prior to this, but Fargo, I think, is definitely the movie that made them, like, big names among, like, mainstream audiences, you know? Uh, it became household names in the way that, you know, like, Martin Scorsese or, you know, Quentin Tarantino, even though he was younger than them, uh, he had already done Pulp Fiction at this point, and so he was kind of a sensation. Uh, Fargo is kind of what made the Coen brothers kind of a brand. Yeah, like, it's interesting that you mentioned, like, their age. So how old? Because I think in my mind, they're, like, perpetually in their 40s. But The Coens? Uh-huh. Um, Joel is uh, the older one, as I recall. I think he's three or four years older. I believe he was 66. Holy shit! And he's only three or four years older, you said? I think so. I think he's in his 62 or 63. Wow. Well, yeah, in my mind, I think for whatever, did they first rise to like real fame around the age of forty? Maybe they're just like well, maybe I mean, that's when I first saw them. And Blood I'm like, Simple was their first movie. That was nineteen eighty four. Um, Before so, our time. Yeah, um, and that one was a big critical hit right out the gate. So they were already, um, you know, well known. Uh, after the first movie, which they would have been in their late twenties, I guess. Um, and then yeah, but I bet they were in their forties by the time I started watching their films, and or would have seen them on any commentary or anything. Probably. Interesting. Interesting. So let's get down into the nitty gritty. When did Fargo come out? 1996. And you said that their first movie was 1984? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. This was, there was a bigger gap there than I thought. Yeah, 12 years. Um, this was their sixth movie. Really? I feel like when I was in college, like, the, like everybody owned a copy of this movie, and this movie was kind of talked about. At least, like, it was, wasn't, like, the greatest movie ever, but it's a movie that people... Like, everybody had seen, except for me. I hadn't seen it at that point. Uh, I do remember trying to watch it back in the day and being bored. Um, but I um, I guess I just always thought this was their first movie because it seemed like people still would talk about Fargo and the Coen brothers. Like, almost like that's how they discovered them. Well, it is the way a lot of people discovered them. It, yeah, I mean, it was their first movie that was a big kind of like sensation. Um, uh, I think it did pretty well at the box office, but it was also just one of those kind of zeitgeisty movies. You know, it came out and was uh, just kind of instantly revered. You know, one of these movies that was just immediately recognized as, oh, shit, this is, this is a classic. Um, and it was the first time that they had... I mean, they had won a bunch of, like, festival awards, you know, like, Barton Fink had created a sensation because it was the first movie ever to win 
Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Picture at the Cannes Film Festival, which is maybe the most prestigious film festival in the world. But I think Fargo was the first time that they had ever like been even nominated for an Oscar. Um, so that kind of mainstream attention had largely eluded them uh, in the 12 years they had been in the industry prior to Fargo. Uh, and at this point, Frances McDormand had done lots of different projects. She, I guess I'm not so familiar with her work outside of the Coen Brothers. Like, I, I guess I imagined that she... I guess it's hard for me because I don't know much of her work outside of the Coen Brothers, so I just thought she only did Coen Brothers films. No, uh, she's a super highly regarded actress, even outside of their movies. You know, won two Oscars for other people uh, in movies that the Coens had nothing to do with. But, I mean, she obviously is closely linked with them. She's done tons of movies. Blood Simple, I think, was her first movie. If not, it was really early on. Uh, obviously married to Joel. Yeah, but were they married at the, that point? They met on Blood Simple. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. See, I just always... I mean, I always knew that she was married to Joel, so I assume that's why she was in a lot of the films. Because there's some similar thing, I think, with... Oh my gosh, I can't... Judd Apatow, his wife is in a lot of his films. And also, um, I can't think of their name, but Resident Evil... Oh, Mia Jovovich. Yeah, it seemed like she's been in every, like, that's almost all she did for a while. But, um, yeah, so at this point, she's already well-established, and she's, I would, I felt like, um, I love William H. Macy, and I hate to really make this comparison, but in the film, I think that she's definitely the, the person that you, the actor that you talk about the most after the, the movie job they did. Well, she's definitely the heart of the movie. Um, it's uh, kind of crazy looking back on it because, uh, yeah, if you think of Fargo, like one of the first things you're going to think of is her, you know. Marge. Um, but she doesn't even appear until half an hour into the movie. Right, and she does a really great job, I think, of capturing how... Well, for one, that Wisconsin accent, well, in this case, it's Minnesota. Yeah, sorry. But, but, you know, northern, upper northern American accent. Um, There's something about that accent that makes someone sound, like, pretty laid back and easygoing. That doesn't generally phase them. Yeah, like, I feel like that accent, just hearing it, you kind of, like, get into just your body just eases you're not tense for people i mean yeah if you hear if you've heard that accent from somebody abusive from that area you are like uh no i've heard assholes with that accent i'm sure you have but for people not from that area who don't have a lot of exposure and the exposure you do have are like he's really friendly i think most people friendly yeah, I think um, that's the general yeah perception it's just it's just like, wow, good folk to be around. And then you put on top of that accent that she's working as a police officer who sees horrendous things all the time and has to like pretty much do have a job to do. They can't really be sidetracked with a bunch of emotion. It's almost surreal because there's those two things layered on each other 
when she first gets out to like the crime scene and how I don't want to say matter of fact because she has that accent that's almost like cheery but she's not cheery she's not happy about it but she is somewhat like matter of fact and has this easygoing accent so it's like even more like just definitely how I feel like police officers in the upper northern area would respond and react to things because they're conditioned to do their job but it kind of slaps you in the face a little like whoa like they're talking about dead bodies <laughs> like you know and even her partner's like did you have breakfast and not her partner but the other officer that made it to the scene before her um it just it really stands out i think it's really realistic I, I don't think there's anything about that that's like making fun of anybody or trying to be a joke i do think that's how it would be played but it is definitely like whoa they're like there's this i don't know how pregnant she was but it seemed very far along i would yeah, say I like the, definitely movie, less at the trimester end of the movie, she says uh, i think the last line is like six more weeks or something like that. right six more weeks yeah until she's due um, so and she had like that one line with the police officer that was, you know, she was investigating the body of the police officer and something about how uh, he looks like a nice enough guy. It's like yeah. a real shame. Oh, yeah. You know, like she's upset, but um, she's also, I think, just kind of, I mean, it's her job. She has to maintain her professionalism. Um, and that's very much the way police officers are. I know I was talking to you about this because I've been doing a citizenship police academy class and um, in our hometown and they have to cover a lot of a lot of things they cover in the class. I'm like it's just amazing the candor that they have as they're talking about this case or that case or how you would handle this situation because I think a lot of people would be screaming bloody murder if they saw some of this stuff. Like, you know, and you wouldn't be able to do your job. So it was, I felt like that stood out as being super authentic. But you put this, like, this accent on top of the situation that to me is, like, the most pleasant accent to listen to, like, release tension. It makes you think of, like, I don't know, pleasant things, and they're talking about murder, and she's actually, like, looking at the dead bodies, and I, I don't know, like, there was one point where they, like, threw up before they got shot, or something. I'm like, oh, God. Like, but she's not very... I mean, she's, she's definitely on track to do her job. Like, none of it is... I mean, I think that's the thing you... Somebody watching this initially might be like, they're not taking this serious. She's, she takes that case extremely seriously. You know, I mean, she does a very thorough job in, in digging into it and seeing what happens. Um, it was actually later on in the film when she has an interaction with William H. Macy's character. I forget his name. Um, Scotty's dad. Well, um, I would say he's probably, like, the secondary character. Like, you might start off thinking he's the main character, but as you keep going, it's like, oh, no, the main character, I do think it's her. I 
think they're both kind of the main character. Okay, maybe. Yeah. All right. I think they're kind of shared. They're, I think the movie is kind of presenting these. I think the movie is kind of um, comparing the two characters uh, and their lives, um, juxtaposing them against each other. Uh, you know, because on the one hand, um, William H. Macy uh, is in this, you know, pretty affluent. Jerry. Lumberyard. That's mm-hmm. right, Jerry Lumberyard. Um, he's living this fairly affluent life. I mean, it's, you know, he works at a car dealership, not super um, glamorous, but, you know, he's married into this family of wealth. He has a nice house, you know. The, a lot of his, uh, if you really delve into it, in it, and I, it's one of those frustrating things in real life because if you delve into the minds of criminals and why they do things, there's a lot of instances where there's no answers. It doesn't really make sense. He's in a desperate spot because I don't know who he owes money to. It appears to be a self-inflicted situation. It's never specified why he needs the money. Maybe he's got gambling uh, debts. But it also is... There's people who are legitimately in situations like that where they own money and they get to like these desperate like resort out of extreme debts and you can almost understand it where a little bit you might be understanding like why they stole something or something. And his in this instance it's just mind boggling because his wife comes from a family of extreme wealth. He works at his father-in-law's car dealership. Like, it just seems odd that as conniving as he was to come up with all these, because he's also, he's got his hands in multiple schemes to get money. Like, he couldn't, like, you couldn't just put that effort to finding a way to talk to your wife about this, to her talk to, I mean, it seemed like the dad loved the crap out of his daughter and, yeah, to some extent, had, the grandson or that, the... That line uh, at the end of that one scene where uh, um, he's talking to Lumberyard and um, the father-in-law uh, is like, Scotty and what's the wife's name? Maggie, maybe? Um, uh, for some reason, I thought it started with an R. Uh, he's like, Scotty and the daughter um, never got to marry. But he or maybe mention, it's Jean. Yeah, Jean. But that's why I'm like, the wife could have asked for money. Right, but I, so, I, I mean, we're just left to speculate about what is the root cause of this. Like, what did he do to get himself into debt? Why did he do it? It may be because he feels, uh, I don't know, useless or emasculated. You know, he's working for his father-in-law, um, the nice house he's bought, more than likely through uh, the connection to, you know, the father-in-law and the money that his wife comes from, uh, and so. But that's a sweet life. Why would you mess with it? it like is. that's not. It doesn't seem like right, his wife I think, I think ever. Like the the father in law definitely, I think, like to lord his power over over that a little bit, but the wife, who is the person that I think, if you, you the one that it would really matter to you what they thought. Never seemed bothered by the fact that, that in fact, if 
if anything, I think she liked that he like good you, you're okay working at my dad's car shop. Like it seems like a, a like a family run thing now. Like it doesn't seem like she's like what a loser. My dad had to get you a job. At no point does she ever come across like that. No, no, I, I think that's just all on Jerry's end. You know, uh, he's dealing with something. He seems to be this very desperate person, and that's contrasted with um, Marge, who has this very quaint, happy, domestic life. Um, and it jumps back and forth between the two of them all the time. And between the criminals, you know, they're hiding out up in Brainerd in that shitty little shack, you know, banging on that TV, trying to get it to work. And then it cuts to the TV. Beetle. Yeah, yeah. They're watching TV in bed. And it's this really warm, just little domestic moment where the two of them are in bed together and she's watching some nature documentary and he's already asleep. And it's just, I, I, yeah, it's one of those things where you really don't want to delve into it because there's not really any answers, but it's hard. It's, as much as I like William H. Macy in this movie, because you do, like, kind of feel bad for somebody who's desperate and searching for ways to fix things or whatever, but in the movie, you just hate Jerry. He's... There's, like, there's not a lot of redeeming quality. I, mean, I can't even think of one. He seems to be somewhat protective of his son, but even then, I mean, he was willing to give up, you know, put his wife into danger. He and sees he his son crying end. about, where's mom? Like, I don't know. I Yeah, I don't, and then he leaves, like, I He's, like, just this despicable person who, it's also insane to me if if you were to think about him as just this decent guy who somehow, who knows how, got into a bind, actually maybe owed money to people that were going to hurt his family. That's never really said, but it does seem like he's definitely in a desperate bind for money. Um, that... If you came up with a stupid idea and then carried through with it, which we haven't really gone to a stupid idea yet, but that at the moment shit went south, you would have been telling the authorities everything to find out where she is and go serve your time. But he runs off. Like, like I don't know. To me, I'm like, you're, you're as bad as a psycho that killed people because you put people right in front of the psycho. Like, honestly, if it wasn't for you, that psycho wouldn't have been out there at the times that he was to hurt the people he did. So I, it's, I don't know. It, it, and I, I put the responsibility of the psycho on the psycho too. You shouldn't be going around killing anybody, but it's just odd because I feel like a lot of, uh, a lot of dead bodies piled up because of this harebrained scheme. Exactly. And I think you start out kind of thinking he's going to, there's going to be some, redeeming thing and it just keeps getting worse and I'm like William Jerry damn it Jerry damn it Jerry <laughs> so yeah Jerry comes up with this idea to have his wife kidnapped and to get ransom money for his wife his plan was to ask for a million dollars and only pay the the burglars 40,000 right. I think because right. they're going to think it was 80 and they're splitting it $40,000 to do this job 
like, I don't know. I'm like, maybe because I'm living in 2021, but I'm like, $40,000 to kidnap somebody? Like, I mean, you don't hurt them, you just kidnap them, but still, that's, who's 40, gonna do that? 40000 plus the, the car, the currency. I don't give a crap. Like, I was like, who agrees to this for $40,000? Like, like n- no, that's okay. I don't want to deal with, like, traumatizing another person the rest of their life for 40 grand yeah, and there's two of them like we're let's talk about 20 grand then a piece really criminals who are presumably eking out a shitty life um you know peter stormare at least may have just gotten out of prison because he's yeah because he had just mechanic, served time with right. yeah yeah it's never stated but um the mechanic vouched for his character um Marge, proud but, yeah, Marge yeah. was talking to him and um, talking about how he had um, recently gotten out of prison. He's like, oh, you don't want to go back there. Um, and so it's kind of, it, it would be logical to assume that they met in prison. Yeah, I do think that they did. Um, what's the name of the, there, I know there's like Stephen Buscemi, but then the... Peter Stormare's character is Grimsrud. Oh, Grimsrud. Okay, yeah. Okay, so... Basically, Jerry comes up with this plot to have Jean kidnapped by Grimswood and Carl, so Steve Buscemi, um, and they're going to hide her out somewhere, and then he's going to drop off the money that he gets from his father-in-law, and they're going to secretly split it, no cops involved. And part of this is he gives them a car, the ser- the burnt um, kind of like beige colored Sierra, mm-hmm. uh, and he puts the dealer plates on it, and I guess they were supposed to put real plates on it. Yeah, but maybe he uh, gave it to them. Yeah, it was off a lot. Remember, right? Um, so they're driving the the two kidnappers are driving around in this, and um. It's weird because there's several points where Proudfoot, like, Jerry kind of talks to Proudfoot and he makes, like, a point of that he vouched for Grim... What did you say his name? Grimswood. Grimswood. But he didn't vouch for Carl. He's like, I, like, I don't never heard of him. Get a hold of your guy or whatever. Uh, I would say this job, Carl, like, a guy like Carl seemed better suited for the job, although still an idiot. Because the first death we see on screen is a police officer pulls over the car. They've kidnapped Jean. She's in the back seat. Um, hidden, I think, still under the shower curtain. Uh, either that or a blanket. Or a blanket. Anyway, she's back there and they're telling her to shut up or they'll shoot her. And the officer comes. The reason they got pulled over is because they didn't put their plates on. They didn't. They're still Diller plates, so... Um, he gets out to to get their license and registration and everything. And at the stop, I think um, Gene starts whimpering, and the officer kind of puts his head in to look in the back seat. And psychopath grabs the officer's head and shoots him in the head. And even though his character is the bigger guy and would have an easier time moving a dead body. He makes Steve Buscemi get out to, like, put the body on the side of the road. And so Steve's, like, 
for Carl having a difficult time moving this police officer's body and a car with a couple teenagers. They didn't look very old, 20-something-year-olds. I'm not sure. Drive by very slow, kind of, at least in the way the shot is done. You can yeah, see their face. And you can definitely see that they see this police officer's been murdered and the guy's moving his body. And Grimswood gets in the, moves over to the driver's side and chases them. They fly off the road. And he still gets out and shoots one guy in the back and then shoots the girl who's stuck in the car upside down. So, I mean, at that point, it's like, what the heck are we watching? And, um,. In the meantime, Jerry's trying to get money for this some sort of real estate deal that he wants to invest in for a parking lot. And I guess he's been talking to his father-in-law about it. And father-in-law finally has his accountant. I'm not sure what that guy is, but somebody that he trusts look over their numbers. And they're ready to pull the trigger on this deal and pay him a finder's fee. And he's really unhappy with that. But before he finds out that they just want to give him a finder's fee, he does try to call off the the hit, and he's unable to call off this uh, this kidnapping of his wife. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you get pretty far into the movie before you ever see Marge, because by the time you see Marge, I mean, you saw the planning for this kidnapping... Yeah, the whole, you saw the kidnapping. Saw the whole first act of the movie. She's and the three deaths that that lead to her actually going in. Um, uh, I did think it was kind of cute because there's this part where she's like gets up to go in and her husband wants to make her breakfast, and she's like, "No, don't worry about it." And he's like, "You can't, you can't go in without breakfast." You you tell right away when she sits up that she's super pregnant. Um, so then the next scene is she ate, he got, he did get her to eat breakfast and she's getting up to go out, but then she comes back and she's like, honey. And he's like, what? And she's basically the car is dead. Prowler needs to jump. And I don't, I was like, oh shit, that sucks for him. So, but I mean, it's cold. I mean, it's definitely like, yep, been there. And, uh, you know, she makes it out to the scene and there's an officer already on the scene and they have their discussions about it. And you kind of get the feeling there that she's possibly one of those murder officers on the force. Just in the conversations they have, where she knew that DLR was a dealer. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree 100% with your police work there, Lou. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she's basically working this. I, I think it like becomes like, I mean, there's a police officer that's been shot in the head on a traffic stop, it, and it goes off um, in the media. I mean, that's kind of big news. Uh, so she's somehow associated with the case, or I guess picture somehow is on the news channel, and then an old schoolmate calls her up who lives in the Twin Cities um, just to shoot the breeze or whatever, and... At some point, they decide to meet up when she's in the cities, when she's at the Twin Cities. So, um, I would say that that conversation was weird. Like, when they're showing, like, this conversation where, uh, you know, at night where she's talking to this guy on the phone. It takes a while for that, I think, to really come into play. One of the first things she does when she gets to the city, because... 
Well, Carl and Grimswood have been staying at cheap-ass motels and using escorts. I think they were all escorts. Yeah. But, um, and she's kind of able to track down um, with a description of the car and some other tools guys that, you know, stopped on routes, stopped in, in places on route to the city. And she talks to a couple sex workers who tell her, like the ones like talking about Stephen Buscemi. He comes up a lot that he's funny looking. Mm. Um, which I was like, you know, Stephen Buscemi didn't even try to look that much different than him, his regular self. Mm, kind of funny looking. Kind of. Yeah, he's got a little bit of a rodent look. And that I think is like more pronounced in this film. But um, basically, by talking to, to people and checking phone records, she sees the phone call that Carl made, I'm pretty sure Carl made, to the mechanic, Proudfoot. And that leads her to the city, Twin Cities, and that leads her to William H. Macy. Um, and she talks to the mechanic first, and you can kind of see... Him sweating, like uh, Jerry's sort of sweating about it a little bit. You can definitely tell he's nervous. And when she gets to talk to him, he one of the things she asks is if they had any cars stolen off the lot, and he says they haven't. Um, later on, she meets up with the the ex schoolmate or whatever. I can't exactly remember the story he fed her, but it was like he married one of their other friends named Linda, and she died of cancer. Right. Um, at one point, he scoot. They're sitting in like a booth, and they're you know they're looking at each other like normal people do, and he gets out from his booth and scoots next to her and puts his arm around her, and she's like, I basically tells him I preferred it when you were sitting over there, you know. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she's real polite. She's like, oh, you know, just so I don't have to turn my neck to look at you. Um, anyway, seems like she's kind of getting a little bit of a dead end when she's there. But when she calls a friend of theirs and talks about meeting up with this guy and how sad it is that his wife died and blah, blah, blah. So there's this whole other story there that the guy's been a major creeper. He has a lot of mental health issues. And that Linda was actually stalked by him and had to file like a restraining order to keep him away from her so it's then that's where this comes into the story because it seems like that starts starts making her second guess maybe I think a little bit she was thinking maybe Jerry wasn't being as forthcoming or maybe there's more to the story with that dealership because even when she goes back to to ask him if a car was stolen, she she outlines her thought, like her train of thought. Like she's like, it's just kind of weird, you know. Mm-hmm. Guy makes a phone call to the mechanic that works at this dealer. We're looking for a car with dealer plates, and he gets really snippy with her. Um. But I don't know. Looking at it from big picture, it's like wow, that one little phone call from you know. This random phone call at one point you see her waking up in the middle of the night and her husband's kind of like, what's going on? And he goes back to sleep. You're like, aha, this is where that starts paying dividends. Which, I'm just, 
really cool, I think, where you see little parts like that, actually, where they play into the story. Yeah, that, that scene, it's definitely been discussed a lot. It's uh, one of the, you know, uh, sometimes in the Coen Brothers movies, you get these little digressions, you know, uh, like in The Man Who Wasn't There, when he has his car accident, um, and he has this, he's unconscious, and he has this, I guess it's a flashback or a dream, or both. Um, and it's just this run-of-the-mill scene in which he's uh, sitting on his porch and a salesman comes up and tries to engage him in his um, you know, little sales pitch. And then Francis McDormand, the wife, uh, comes up and tears the pamphlet and tells him to get lost. And then they go inside and they have this kind of just silent exchange where... Billy Bob Thornton is tries to tell her something and she just says nope, don't say anything or something like that and they just sit there uh, and it's not really explained has no narrative connection but it seems to say something about these characters and their relationship um, it, you know the scene in Fargo I, I think is a similar sort of thing it does play into the narrative in a way that that one doesn't but it's also not literally connected to anything else in the movie. Um, right, you you kind of. I remember actually asking you about it later. Like, do you think that that's why she went back to the dealership? Otherwise, it almost seemed like there to show you what a nice person she was, like how kind. I think it just ties into this like portrait of desperate people. You know, for the most right, part, the movie yeah. the movie is concerned with these people who have been sucked into this life of crime. Um, then on the other side, there's this guy who has this very ordinary life, lives with his parents. Well, stalking people, that is criminal. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the full extent of it. He does something creepy, and the woman gets a restraining order against him. Um, but it doesn't seem to be anything, like, exceptional. It's not like, uh, um, he's, uh, cooked up some criminal scheme that is worth making a movie about, you know, he's just this very sad, lonely, desperate person, um, and I think that's part of the connection that Marge makes to Lundergaard and what gets her back to that dealership, um, but yeah, I think it, so it, it plays in the story, but I think it has thematic significance beyond that as well, I think that's, because there are a lot of different ways that they could have gotten her to reevaluate uh answers to her. Right. And, and uh, having this long kind of digression with uh, this old classmate. Um seems like an unusual uh like That's true. Choice. But he but the that portrait, as you said, of desperate people, that really rings true. I think that that's a great way to put it. I, I, the other thing about Jerry that's like I uh, I don't know, is He's very despicable in the fact that he's willing to put this, and you really shouldn't be willing to do this to anybody, but oh, as far as we can tell, amazing wife, great mother, you know, like, she's not abusive in any sense to their kid or to him, like, there doesn't seem to be any reason why you would want to put them through anything traumatic. Not that you should want to put anybody, but you mean you know what I mean. It's not like they give you any reason why he might be like disgruntled with her, or that she somehow, nope. like, would deserve to be put through something like that. Uh, if anything, it's like, what the heck? You have this wife that loves you and 
she's very active and their kid, you know, in his life and just to, like, and it's also bizarre because you can tell that um, she has full trust in him. You know, I don't think if if this if this had worked, I don't think she ever would have thought that Jerry did it. That Jerry had anything to do with it. So it's like even more disgusting in some ways. Like he like he's just like a snake. People couldn't even tell it was a snake, except Marge can pinpoint it. And some people like so he's doing the shady other shady stuff that just it's not as despicable as this plot to have his wife kidnapped. But I'm not sure if this was with the car that he gave away, but he got money as a loan to buy some cars, and he couldn't send the VIN numbers. Yeah, it was a separate whole... Yeah, it, it was like another... Another little scam. Another there. little scam where he got this money, and he, and he can't... Like, he's just running this other little thing on the side. And then, on top of that, this seemed... I mean, this you might be like, huh, this seems like car dealership shit that they would run this stuff. But then this seemed like a Jerry shit thing, too. That thing about that coat, the protective coat, and how he was just... The true coat. The true coat, and how he was... It, he really gets into it with the one customer, and then he acts like he's going to go talk to his boss about it. And come, he doesn't talk to the boss, which I know is a ploy that they do, but I think in this case... He purposely added it on to try to get money for himself because it seemed like he was going to overcharge for the true coat. He didn't even talk to anybody and came back and was like, oh, you can get it for 50%. So that was, yeah, so that's like what the actual cost was. So it did seem like he was trying to pad his pocket by putting on these extra orders and then overcharging for them. Orders that people never even asked for. And he did a pretty good job of acting ashamed of himself. But what's disgusting is, um, I mean, I don't think that, I don't think it worked for that, like, when that guy is, like, like, gonna write the check and he's really pissed and um, Jerry looks down, like, sad and dejected, like, like he feels bad. He don't feel bad. And I think that guy knew he didn't feel bad. I think he did. I think... Uh, you think that was genuine? I think there was... Uh, a moment of self-reflection like mm-hmm. jerry's a terrible person but he is a person you know he's not this mustache twirling villain i think there's dimensions i don't know to me it just looked like like he like obviously if he said anything the guy could push to not pay anything at all so he's just like i'm gonna act like i'm sad because at least i'm getting half of it i think it was a moment of self-loathing it wasn't long enough. He should be self-loathing the entire movie. <laughs> but, okay, so th- there's just so many things going on because he has all these rackets going on and a lot of them are poorly orchestrated. Uh, he's He is not a criminal mastermind. He doesn't know how to sniff out criminal masterminds, so he's got two dinguses that have his li- his wife's life in their hands, you know. And who knows what they could do to her? Like, one of them is an ex-convict, probably both. Probably. And and they had her. The idea was they're gonna have her. Uh, I don't know. It's just very disgusting. But okay, fine, whatever. The guy's got all these different 
ways that he's trying to get this money. He's got the thing with the father-in-law and the parking lot deal, which, dude, if you need money, get that finder's fee for that deal. And he's trying to rip off a bank that loaned him money to buy new cars, and he's trying to rip off people with this true coat thing. And he's got the whole thing with his wife getting kidnapped. I mean, and multiple things are not working out. I don't think the true coat scam works very well. He, the bank is definitely on to him about the fake cars and not having proper VIN numbers. You see that rolling in. That, yeah, that's that, about to get turned over to legal doing again. Right, yeah. and right when he's hearing about that, Mars shows up to, to question him again about checking about to see if any cars have been stolen. And he's like, she wants to talk to his boss and he gets on a huff, and he puts on his coat and his hat, and he's like, I'm going to go do a lot count right now. And then he gets in his car and drives off, and she's like, she's like, yeah. <laughs> um, which, that part is where I'm like, well, maybe she wasn't 100% suspicious of him, because she did seem genuinely shocked that he was playing the interview, that he was, like, a shitty person. It did seem like she didn't expect that, and that she really was trusting it. Maybe he was telling the truth. Maybe come and have a lot count that worked out. But as soon as he flees the interview, she's calling for backup and everything. Um, it's really sad. But prior to that, we see Jerry talking to his father-in-law. Um, I, this scene, I thought, was really weird. And I get why they did it, but it's just really weird. So he gets home and he realizes that this kidnapping that he orchestrated has occurred. And so you see him practicing, kind of like talking to his father-in-law. Well, yeah, so you don't see that at first. Uh, the camera's in the other room and you hear him right. in the kitchen. So at first you and, think he is. Yeah, and he, he sounds all broken up and everything. And then the camera moves into the room and you actually see him and he's not actually on the phone. He's just pretending. Right, he's rehearsing. So he finally gets it where he likes it and he's like, okay, gonna make the phone call and you can hear him like take a breath to do the, oh my god, whatever, and there's a receptionist that answers yeah. and he has a very um, monotone, like normal he's voice. Normal, nice. Yeah, like, like um, oh my gosh, uh, I can't remember the the father-in-law's name, but he's like, father-in-law, please, or whatever. And it, it just would seem weird, because I'm like, and if this really happened, you wouldn't have, it's just one of those indicators, I think, that if somebody was listening to this call, like later, if it was recorded and officers were listening to it, they'd be like, well, that's weird, because I would think you would be like, oh my God, get me on the phone with so-and-so. Like, you yeah, know, but it wasn't ever supposed to go to investigators it was just he needed to sound broken up for his father-in-law so he would buy it uh, yeah well i guess his father-in-law does buy it and they end up at a restaurant with the father-in-law and i don't know his attorney or his accountant or business partner or somebody that works for the father-in-law um the father-in-law wants to go to the police which i think is a great a great play if you think you're loved one's been kidnapped like why would we listen to these kidnappers but his account kind of 
talks him out of that because he's like, you know, doesn't want anything to happen to the daughter and agrees with Jerry, like, no cops. Um, it has to be a million dollars. The accountant is like, we can get a million dollars together. Let us know. Like, kind of comes up with this plan to get the money together and Jerry just sit tight. Um, we'll be in contact and let us know. Do you want us... Like, at one point, he's like, do you want us somebody with you when they call? And he's like, they said it had to be just me. They were very clear about that. And he's like, okay. So, um, the, there's also, um, over time, the father-in-law gets to think about it. And he wants to confront the people that, that took his daughter. So, he's like, I have to be the one that drops off this money. Right, he wants to drop off well it, the way he phrases it is he doesn't want uh Lundegaard mucking it up like right but it's a good thing that he wanted to do it because he was literally going to it's a million dollars that's more than what they agreed to um however Carl's character has been having a shit, shitty time because when, after Marge... He just got the shit kicked out of him by the mechanic. By Proudfoot. Because he's been questioned by the police right. and was worried they were going to get him sent back to the slammer. So he goes, kicks the shit out of Showalter, Carl. Um, and then, uh, and so at that point, Carl is in a hop. Um, and so that's when he calls and, you know, uh, lambast Jerry and pressures him into you know making the drop now and um and he, he threatens Scotty right and so because of the situation with Chet um his his blood pressure is high you know mm -hmm. and he's um all angry and frustrated and then um the father-in-law shows up for the drop and he's confused and he's like where's Jerry yeah and so he winds up shooting and killing the father-in-law. Father-in-law had a gun and shoots Carl in the face. Um, I think directly. it just grazed him. I mean, it's, it's pretty, a pretty, bad. pretty thick graze. Right. Uh, so, yeah, and then that in turn led to Carl killing the attendant at the, uh, um, yeah, what do they call those? Uh, you know, these gates. Mm -hmm. The uh, parking attendant. Right. Wait, uh, did, yeah, he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah him. It was also uh, frustration from the previous encounter when he was stealing the tags. And right, and he made him get four bucks. Yeah, all of but these things. Just keep, uh, Jerry is also in the parking garage. Sees him. He, yeah, he comes in as uh, Showalter is leaving. Uh, he uh, sees the, you know, there's that really great shot where you know he drives up and father-in-law's dead body is there and the camera is just on the behind the car and it sits there for a minute and then um the trunk is popped you know it's like you don't see uh Lundergaard's reaction um you just uh it's just sort of implied I'm, I'm sure he like was horrified but then he's like okay well now we gotta move this body you know it's just it's just a shitty person so, uh, 
by the time that Mars shows up to question him a second time, to question Jerry, this has gone down. No. No. No, this, uh, um, that happened before. Oh, okay, I got it a little out of order. But immediately following this, we do see Carl open up basically the the money and realize there's way more than $80,000. And he gets out 80000 and pulls off on the side of a highway somewhere that's in the middle of BFE and gets out and digs into the snow to hide the, like, basically $920,000. Um, and then he sticks, like, the ice, what is that thing? For your window? Uh, ice pick. Or ice, ice pick, the scraper. Ice scraper. He sticks it, the small ice scraper with the orange handle sticking out. Gets back in his car. Right. I was like, which is so bizarre because I watched the first season of Fargo, the TV series, and it kind of follows with who finds that money. Just gonna put this out there. This money's cursed. <laughs> Good things don't happen to the people that get it. But anyway, yeah, uh, I I, uh, I hated that. Uh, I mean, we only watched the most of the first season didn't even quite finish it but i hated 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 that show but that was a nice little yeah. nice little touch the way they uh took that element from the movie and they right and it it was weird too because i i was watching this and yeah they're not directly related you know it's kind of like a nod i would say to this it's it's not like official canon no you know it's just but it is interesting, like, oh, that's what happens to this money. Even though, really, the Coen brothers never said what happened. But it, I liked kind of having, like... Because at the end of this movie, that money's just out there. Anything could happen. So that story could have happened. Uh, uh, there was a story. I don't know if it's true or not. It might be a myth. But there was a story that some woman from Japan, I think... Um, flew to Minnesota and froze to death searching for oh the money no. because, you know, there was the based on a true story thing. And oh. Probably not true, but that was... Uh, yeah, why do you have to break our hearts? Jeez, Louise. Dang, Lou. <laughs> anyway, um, Stephen Vashimi's character sadly comes to a horrific end. And it, it, there's so much info that you get so quickly in the scene where he gets into the house because Jean's been murdered. They, she was left alone with a sociopath for so long, you know. And honestly, really pissed because her husband, like, who didn't even know these guys? Like, ugh. So you just see her body on the kitchen floor. Not moving. There's no blood or anything, but you don't... She did look like she was tied to a chair and was... Like, the chair was still there, but... Anyway, so Carl gets in. He's, he just looks down and he's like, what happened here? And I don't... Like, I think he's like, she want to shut up or something. Like... Uh, she started shrieking. That was it. That was the only explanation you get. <sighs> anyway. Then he's... Gives... Throws him his 40 grand... And tells him he's leaving his truck and he's taking the car. Um, 
And the guy's like, we split the car. He's like, split that. Yeah. And he's like, how do you split it? It's a car. And basically leaves to get into the car and leave to go get his almost million dollars. And as he's walking across this snow-laden lawn, the screen door opens and here comes out Grimwood with an axe. Uh, oh, he's kind of on the bowl. Yeah, with no coat. Like, like, he had time for that? But, you know, you see Carl scream, and I'm almost certain you see it go into his arm. Yeah, well, they cut right as it makes contact. And, um, and, uh, Marge has been following up, asking questions around town. And this guy at one of the bars had heard, you don't see this interaction, but um, basically it seems like prior to Carl getting the sex worker he had the night that he got his butt beat by Proudfoot, um, he was at a bar and was talking about going crazy out at the lake several times that he was going crazy. Mentioned that he'd killed somebody. Yeah. Uh, what, what an idiot! Like. Oh. Yeah, and the, like, the last person that talked to me like that is, uh, you know, below ground or something. Yeah, like that. and he's what like, do "What do you think about, about that? that?" And he's like, "Don't do this, do this for that guy." Then. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the officer was like, "No, it doesn't." <laughs> like, but he basically prescribes or describes uh enough of that of their encounter because it was odd enough that he decides like he talked to one of his neighbors and the neighbor was like, you need to tell the cops about that. So he's like, here I am talking to you. And Marge goes out around. She asked, I think which lake. Uh, and he's like, he just mentions one that he thought like, well, there's this lake, but this one's closer. And this one I thought he was talking about. So she goes driving around and she, um, sees the car, the dealer plate car, the, Dirt, beige, sedan, Sierra, whatever. Dear God. The, like, she, okay, so, yeah, you're, you're like, you see her in the beginning and her reaction when she sees these people that have been shot, a fellow officer has been shot, you know, she's, she's very, um, yeah, like, stoic, got some job to do. I want to say stoic seems a little too harsh, but you know what I mean. But dang, nothing rattles this woman. Because she comes up on him putting a body in a fucking wood chipper. And there's it's clearly a good part of this body has gone through the wood chipper. That's all it has. Yeah, he's just on his lower limb. (sighs) Dear God. And she don't throw up. She's like trying to get his attention because he's got the wood chipper going. uh, That to belabor it because I know she's squeamish but that is just such a a funny shot because it's like a such a kind of classic coen brother shot to where you know it's you're kind of sneaking up and you see all the red and and you hear the wood chipper going and everybody knows what's going on but it's a block because the camera's far back and he's in front yeah you see him like with this foot and he starts hitting it with like a piece of wood. Yeah, it, it, oh. it cuts and then yeah, there's just that foot going in. And I mean, just uh, 
the way they're coy about it at first, and then they just cut. Uh, oh yeah, there's a foot. Right. And um, I think for the viewer, you're like, well, I knew this guy was a sociopath. You're almost like, yeah, this guy was a sociopath. This is what he would do. But for her, I don't know. It, she's the. I mean, she arrests him. I would, I, I would have been screaming bloody murder. Like, I gotta wait for some more officers. I'm not going near that guy. But um, he runs off and onto the frozen lake. I was really like, oh god, because she gets on the lake too, because she shoots him in the leg as he's, um, because he doesn't listen to her orders. Like, he just immediately takes off onto the lake, and then you see her going out to him on the lake to like arrest him. Um, yeah, um, that is, because, well, yeah, she probably has seen a lot of people, you know, victims of violence when it comes to, like, gunshots and gunfire. That has to be the first time she ever seen somebody sticking a body in a wood chipper, and she's like, actually, she was a little bit like, oh my god, uh, I think, for a moment, before yeah, she, she starts yelling at him. She definitely, her expression is like, right. Um, and... Yeah, whenever he sees her, she's like, she has a look of uh, yeah, I she's guess fear. she's almost a little bit like, hello, I'm the cops. Yeah, she's like, you know, yeah, because like, yeah. you know the wood chipper's going, so she can't like really communicate to him verbally, and so I don't know how she didn't like. I I would be so scared. I like I don't know how you want to just shoot that person. Like, if you see a. You have a gun. I, I'm not trained with weapons, but if you had a gun and you saw somebody sticking a body in a wood chipper, I I just feel like you start shooting at them. I don't know. Like I definitely don't. I even with him shot in the leg, I would be too scared to go near him. Like that's got this is a he was sticking a body in a wood chipper. Like, but I guess you don't know. Maybe he didn't kill them, but we know he did, and he's killed. He's he has no problem killing people. I'm not exactly sure. Let's see what his death count is. It's at least five people in this movie that we've that we know. Like, cause yeah. he shoots the first officer and he shoots the two passenger, the the joyriding yeah, people, and then he killed Gene and he killed Carl. Yeah. And so you have five people. Of course, Carl's got dirty hands too. Anyway, um, just you know. Definitely not the type of people you would hire to kidnap your wife and not hurt her. Just 110% not that. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, uh, uh, the mechanic the mechanic did vouch for Grimsrud, and that's probably about the best uh, Lundergaard could do since he's not really from... Uh, I would have got the mechanic. If I, like... You, it, Oh, I know you. Oh, I guess the wife knew him too. Um, well, also maybe the mechanic was trying to actually do this somewhat. Um, well, I don't. I, I just, I don't know who you would go to for those type of jobs. But it's almost like if anybody's willing to do a job like that, you probably don't want them doing that job. Like I don't know. Um. So, anyways, we. Which, it's so odd because um, this movie, uh, this scene with the wood chipper is really almost the end of the movie. It's very close to the very, very end. Yeah, but 
This but. scene, I feel like, is what most people think of when they think of a movie. It's pretty iconic. Right. And it's like, I remember watching the movie and I'm like, I thought that it started with the wood chipper scene. I don't know. I guess somehow that's the scene everybody talks about, so that's the scene. It's not an image you get in a lot of, a lot of movies. Definitely not. And I think that's for the best. But... As we move forward through the discussion, um, the the film ends with, um, well, actually, I, it doesn't necessarily end with this, but we do get this nice little cap of um, Marge back in her, like, she solved the crime. She actually has a pretty good speech because Grimswood's in the back of her car. Yeah. But even, like, the way she talks to him... I mean, this guy's not human. And, I mean, she knew that he shot the police officer. She knew, because she's talking about all the life that he took as they're in there. And she can still talk to him like he's, like, a, you know, like a human being. Like, it's just, like. Yeah, but some of it is, you know, it almost seems like that's just her kind of. Kind of processing things herself. Yeah, like, what a shame. Like, 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 what a, yeah, she's like, like an idiot. Yeah, know? like, for like, for what, a little she, bit of money? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but I feel like a lot of people, uh, this kind of goes back to like, you know, maybe because she has to keep, she's got a job to do, but you'd be screaming at them, they're like, what did you do? <laughs> like, I don't know, <laughs> like, you killed people, and I would, I just like, for what? Like, the, I mean, to end back where you started, like, for yeah. nothing, you killed people for nothing. That's, I mean, Ugh. that's where, I don't know, those two worlds come colliding. Her uh, happy, normal life of domesticity and then this world of crime and desperation yeah. and greed. Um, and and he, uh, he does kind of seem like he's listening to her. I mean, he doesn't try to defend. There's no words that he uses to do. No, you know, he just, he just, he just you know, it's, it's, it's like a... I'm not sure if they got through to him or not, but he, he's at least not arguing the points at that point. Um, but we do get to end our time with her, and on a very happy note, her husband, has his art has been selected for the two-cent stamp, I believe, or the two... Yeah. Uh, some odd cent stamp. or It's not cents. Yes, and, and he's kind of bummed a little bit because he's like... Um, you know, not a lot of people buy it. And she's like, sure they do. When the postage goes up and you need to use all the old stamps. And, oh, she's just this really sweet person. And she was genuinely happy. Like, when she when he first mentioned it, she's like, oh, my gosh, babe. Um, and so they, don't, they got their quiet little happy married life. And they're, they're just, like, I'm like, man, it'd be nice to see them as parents. Because they're about to be parents. Like, yeah, that's when she says six more weeks and all that. And then the film ends with um, Jerry's character still being a sleaze, trying to escape justice. Well, that's actually justice. before. Oh, was that before? The very last scene is them and Oh, okay. For some reason, I didn't realize that's what book ended it. That's a better ending. But the last time we see Jerry, he's trying to make it out the window of a motel bathroom because he knows the cops are closing in on him. And you see him being thrown onto his motel bed to get his 
cuffs on. Um, at this point, who knows who's watching Scotty because his grandpa's been murdered, his mom's been murdered, and his dad's somewhat in a roundabout but very responsible for what happened way orchestrated all of it. And it just... I mean, he didn't even, as far as we know, arrange for anybody to take care of his son. So I would have loved to have seen something saying, you know, he got sentenced to life in prison for, or something. But, you know, you don't really know what the end result is for him. Like he was on a, a I would hope so. And I hope Scotty grows up to be a well-adjusted adult. But who knows after dealing with, like, that kind of craziness. Like, I mean, because even he would have to cope with, who would have thought my dad would have hired somebody to kidnap my mom? Yeah, like, you know, it just, he didn't seem, I feel like that makes it just extra evil. There was no indication of this that would, would feel like even more, like, yeah. how can I trust anything? Yeah, it's a difficult thing to deal with. And we, know, we don't get to see Scotty at all. Later, this guy. But, this is kind of a good segue, I would say, into the Halloween of our season and our next film why don't you go on about that I think we're gonna so the next one is specifically I believe the idea is to cover the classic universal monster movies and so we're gonna look at four of those throughout the month uh, and I believe we are going to start with Frankenstein that we are so join us next week as we delve into Frankenstein Bye.